The National Association for Primary Education has an SEND conference in association with the University of Bedfordshire on the 26th of April 2024. This is a hybrid event and available to anybody in person or online. Please go to nape.org.uk for more information. That's nape.org.uk. I'm delighted to share I am now delivering podcast training courses for the London School of Public Relations. The One Day Essentials of Podcasting Certificated Short Course is highly practical and packed full of useful information to get you on the road to producing your own professional podcasts. The podcast course will help you to create, edit, deliver and promote your podcast. The course also provides useful tips and tricks on producing professional and effective results. So you can find out about these in-person and online training courses at educationonfire.com forward slash LSPR. Hello, my name is Mark Taylor and welcome to the Education on Fire podcast. place for creative and inspiring learning from around the world. Listen to teachers, parents and mentors share how they are supporting children to live their best authentic life and are proving to be a guiding light to us all. Hello, welcome to the Education on Fire podcast. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you to everyone who's been sharing the show with their friends, their family, their colleagues. Um, it's a fantastic way to spread the message. And those of you who've also contributed a small donation to help the, the, the growth of the show, you can do that at educationonfire.com forward slash support. Now, today I'm delighted to be chatting to Pablo Munoz, and he's the Managing Director of Munoz & Company, an educational leadership consulting organisation. He has 30 years of public education experience as a teacher and administrator and was superintendent of schools for 16 years. Pablo is a leadership coach, teacher, trainer and speaker, an adjunct professor and the author of The Leader's Algorithm, which we're going to be talking about during this episode. So I really hope you enjoy this. It's absolutely fascinating and always great to be able to chat to someone who's really managed to put their experience into a piece of work which is going to really support so many people. So I really hope you enjoy this conversation with Pablo Munoz. Hi, Pablo. Thank you so much for joining us here on the Education on Far podcast. Um, it's always great to chat to someone who has a wealth of experience and also someone who's kind of using that experience to then sort of bring it full circle, slight change of career, slight change of focus, and, and as you've been doing here for your books. So, yeah, thanks so much for being here. Mark, thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be on your show. So just take us first of all into that journey in terms of I know education was incredibly important for you but then also in terms of of that journey from sort of into the school superintendent and then sort of how that's taken you through to sort of this sort of author role yeah so let me uh, I guess let me introduce myself to uh, to the audience um, I was uh, born, raised, and educated in Elizabeth, New Jersey. So it's on the other side of the pond in the United States. Uh, Elizabeth is about 16 miles uh, southwest of New York City. So really close there. Um, people that fly into New York, fly into Newark Liberty International Airport. That's that's where Elizabeth is. Uh, for, the, for the past 26 years, uh, I've been living in a town called Maplewood, New Jersey. And that's where I, I raised my my two daughters. Uh, my story begins largely with uh, my parents, Pablo and Luz Munoz. They're from Aguada, Puerto Rico, and they immigrated to to New Jersey uh, in their teens. Uh, they um, got married. They had me and then my younger sister. My dad has an eighth grade education, and my mother has a sixth grade education. And 
And the type of work that they did was fairly low pay. My dad was in the restaurant business, worked his way up from washing dishes to being a cook at a fairly large banquet hall. And my mom used to work in a factory, but eventually her career took her into being a seamstress and getting paid by the piece. Uh, I lived in in a three-family home with uh, mom, dad, sister, and my maternal grandmother, uh, my mom's mom, Cecilia. And, uh, and also my aunt and her three children. My dad is one of 15 children and my, my mom is one of five. So uh, as you can imagine, I have a lot of first cousins. I think by last count, the number was about 70. <laughs> um, I graduated from Elizabeth High School here in New Jersey. Uh, I played baseball for most of my life. I ended up paying, playing baseball in college. Uh, I majored in psychology at Yale. And I also participated in the teacher preparation program there my junior and senior year. So my senior year, I student taught in New Haven, Connecticut at a, at a high school called Wilbur Cross. I also um, volunteered as, as a baseball coach uh, while I did my student teaching. Um, I ended up getting my master's degree from Teachers College, Columbia University in New York City in educational administration. Uh, and my career largely started back in my hometown in Elizabeth. I taught uh, social studies at Elizabeth High School. Then I became the supervisor of social studies, then the director of curriculum instruction, then the assistant superintendent of schools. And then in 2005, I became the superintendent of schools in, in the Elizabeth Public Schools in New Jersey. I did that for about eight and a half years, which uh, generally is, is a long time for any superintendent. But in the United States, where they range kind of last about three years, I was, uh, I like to say I was like a unicorn, someone that was able to <laughs> last through two contracts. Um, and then um, in 2013, I transitioned to another school district in New Jersey called Passaic, uh, smaller district, same type of uh, low economics uh, um, largely uh, children of color uh, school system. Uh, I did that for seven and a half years. And then, then I retired in 2021. I transitioned to uh, my next phase in life, which was to uh, become established actually my, my business, which is educational leadership consulting. I teach and train uh, uh, school leaders, uh, quite frankly, anyone who'd like to get trained in leadership. Uh, I also uh, executive coach and, and, and mentor. Those tend to be the focus of, of my, my business. Uh, I also am an adjunct professor at Lehigh University in Pennsylvania in the educational leadership department. And uh, and main reason we're on the show is that I became an author and, and I wrote my first book, The Leader's Algorithm, which came out in July. And like I said earlier, I, I am the father of two daughters, uh, Cecilia, she's 22, and Sadie, uh, she's 19. She's a first year in college. Sadie, gra uh, Cecilia graduated uh, in June and Sadie is a first year. Uh, and she's actually at Northeastern University on, on the London campus for her first year. So that kind of gives you a sense of, of who I am and where I am, I am today. And I'm really interested in, in terms of that kind of leadership um, role that, from the company standpoint. What's the difference or is there a difference in terms of when you're talking to educators per se, as opposed to sort of leaders in that general sense? Uh, I, I don't know that there is much of a difference. 
uh, I tell you when, you know, I've, I spent a lot of time reading leadership books and, and most of them tend to be from the business world or tailored to, towards the business world. So it's very interesting on, 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 you know, educational leaders and business leaders or nonprofit leaders, uh, you know, they, it's easy for them uh, or, or folks to, to grab a book uh, tailored for the business world and then try to apply it to either their nonprofit or their public schools or the government or the, or their business setting. Uh, but I don't know that the reverse happens all too, all too frequently. And, uh, and and as we get into my book later, uh, the structure of the book really lends itself to be used by any leader. Uh, although since most of my experiences have been in education and public education, tends those tends to be the most uh, uh, the the examples that, that I use. Um, but um, the I mean. When I'm coaching, there isn't much of a difference if we coach authentically how, how it's supposed to be, right? I'm supposed to be kind of driving and asking the questions and having that person really come up with the answers and set goals. Uh, mentoring is a little bit different because uh, oftentimes my clients are from the education field and they really uh, are, they tend to ask me more questions than, than I ask them because they really want to pick my brain about, about what they're they're doing in their field, right? They're, they're new to an administrative role and they're trying to figure it out and they want to see how I handled a certain problem in the education setting. Um, but uh, generally leadership is leadership, right? And it's about influencing people and, and motivating and inspiring them. So uh, my, my clients, whether they're from the private sector or from the public sector, um, uh, if we're talking strictly leadership and, and those challenges uh, and solving problems and, and motivating people and inspiring people, having, um, you know, you deliver results through others, uh, there shouldn't be much of a difference, but it depends, right? And it depends yeah. if 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 the client really just wants someone uh, to mentor them, uh, having been you know a CEO of of, of a you know a private or public corporation, uh, they may want someone with those experiences to share back and forth versus my experiences, which uh, tend to be <laughs> a little more interesting in the sense that you know public education is. Uh, in the center, in the it, it is it lives in the center of politics. So, yeah. uh, so, and um, and take me into that absolute absolute passion for sort of athletics and, and baseball. Was that something which was just ingrained? Something you were introduced to, which you found the love of, and and how did you sort of sort of keep those things going? Like say all the way through through into college, in terms of it being an integral part of your that that sort of educational learning. Yeah, listen, I, I, I don't know how it started. I mean, I do have my, my, my photo albums of me as a baby, and I see myself in, as early as uh, three years old in, in a Mets uniform at, at a local park near our home in Elizabeth, uh, Warrenanko Park, with my mom and dad and cousins. And I do, as, as time goes on, I do remember like the weekends where my, my dad and his brothers, uh, we had family gatherings and we, we would play some base, probably more wiffle ball than anything else mm -hmm. in the park. Uh, so that's how, that's how my love for baseball uh, developed. Uh, you know, it was, it was my dad's passion. So it eventually became my passion. And, um, you know, I, I ended up being a, a pretty good ball player. Um, so that allowed for me to, 
to to be uh, to want to continue at it, right? And uh, and I was fairly athletic, so I played other ones, but other sports. But the main sport that I played organized was baseball, and uh, and I and I started playing it organized. Uh, I think around the age of 10. Before that, it was kind of just street, uh, park, family, across the street at the school in the backyard with my, my neighbors and my, and my cousins. Uh, but then I started getting into the Little League, and then uh, eventually the public schools had a middle school program, then uh, the high school, and then I, I went out to Yale and played varsity baseball there. So uh, as I got older, um, I became more specialized. Uh, so. By the time I was at Yale, I was strictly just a pitcher. When I was younger, I was good enough. I that was I was the shortstop, the pitcher, and 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 the third place hitter. So, <laughs> as time went on, there were much better hitters and, and much better fielders, and, and and my specialty became pitching. And by the time I got to college, I I really transitioned to being a, a closer. Um, so bring it, being the relief pitcher, with the bases lowered, here's the ball, try to get a couple out so we can win this game. Uh, so that, that, and I've been athletic for most of my life. I'm being, I'm much older now and, and the muscles are a little bit tighter. So things don't move as well as they used to. Um, but you know, that ultimately, uh, was, uh, something that I, that I, um, uh, cultivated in my two daughters, but, uh, sports, athletics, teamwork, that, those lessons, you know, baseball was really interesting for me because, uh, it was a team sport, but I also played an individual part of that sport. Um, you know, um, you know, people can argue that hitting is individual and it certainly is, but probably if you look at all the defensive positions, the pitcher is probably the most individualistic piece of it and the mo- the central focus you have the ball and the game doesn't really start until you do something with it and um so um i learned a lot from playing the sport from this perspective of teamwork and uh and and pitching and realizing that i needed the other eight ball players to be successful <laughs> defensively but offensively i needed them to score runs too because it right i i mean i if I could throw a shutout and we didn't score runs, that that wasn't going to help us very much. Um, so I learned a lot about teamwork. Uh, I had a really great high school coach, so I learned a lot about uh, coaching and practices and 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 thinking through uh, strategy and pitching strategy. But from an individual perspective, as as you move up and then ultimately you're in the singular role of superintendent, right? There's no other superintendent in the particular school district. Just like when you become CEO of a, of a corporation or a CEO of a nonprofit, you are it, right? You, you have people reporting to you and you report, usually report to a board, but ultimately you are the main person. Um, I thought I, I'm, as I reflect in, and, and it's an interesting question because no one's really asked me that until you, Mark. Um, I think baseball really, as a pitcher, really helped me uh, think uh, and be okay being by myself at times, thinking through problems and understanding that critical decisions that I was going to make, even though I would get feedback from my board and from my staff and from the community, uh, ultimately, I would have to make a decision. And and the same thing is true when I was pitching, right? The catcher could throw down a fastball, a curveball, a slider, a changeup, but ultimately I had to decide what I what I wanted to throw. Uh, sometimes the coach would be throwing in, you know, throw this pitch and he probably knew better, but ultimately I had to 
<laughs> I actually I actually had to execute. So yeah, uh, I, I, I love it. Like you say, yeah, 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 and I, and I can really see, like you say, how how it all just influences everything that we do, and and I love that kind of juxtaposition of like say the individual and the team, and 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 how that comes in because essentially, unless you're le- literally working on your own in a room, just doing your own thing, you're always part of something bigger, aren't you? And uh, and I do like that, and I and find I, I like that. I find it interesting that you you asked the athletic question, and I know I write a lot about it because it's been part of my life, but uh, I, I two interesting pieces about it is that oftentimes it's easy for me to use metaphors and examples when I was leading sports, using in sports, and actually when I'm teaching classes, the same thing, but I don't always, sometimes I don't have an these these students that are in there, my staff members, aren't athletes they've they've lived other lives and i have a student now who's when we when we actually start talking about teamwork and individualism and and training and all that she's in the theater so then we transition and talk about well how does the theater play itself out and then i had had an assistant superintendent for many years and she's a superintendent now and she (laughs) she used to tease me with the with the sports metaphors because she wasn't very athletic she kind of said you know i hear it but can you give me a different example so i can relate to it <laughs> yeah, and I, and I, the other thing I really liked is, like you said, you know, with that, that amount of family that you had, that sort of community feel of having some sort of shared experience with your cousins and all of that kind of thing is a really great thing to be able to to bring into. And you know, I I did football and things when I was younger, and, and I'm a musician, so that kind of sense of you know, if you're playing drums, you're the only one doing the drums, but you you're a, you're only part of everyone else that's playing too, and uh, it's a really fascinating sort of sort of. I don't know, kind of pinpoint of of ego, of of kind of being right, not being right, sharing your experiences, listening, working together, but at the same time doing your job as well. I, yeah, I just I find it a really sort of fascinating uh, um, sort of yeah, middle fasc- middle ground. It's fascinating in the sense of you know you're talking about a music ensemble and I and and I talk about uh, sports teams, but it's fascinating from the perspective of you as a leader. Uh, because you often, you as an athletic coach, you have to break down all the different pieces, all the different units, uh, right? I mean, hitting is not just hitting. You got to break it down. Throwing is just not throwing. You have to break it down. Fielding and doing the different plays. And the same thing that you're referring to in music. So as a leader of an organization, you have to think about the totality of, of the organization, but you have to think about the individual parts and 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 usually you're talking about individual people and you have to think about what they need in their development and what also what helps motivate them. And the same thing is around like, you know, someone who is leading a music ensemble. Yes, we need to work with the drums, but as I work with the different instruments, eventually I have to put it all together. And and it's the same thing in leadership. Uh, You have a lot of moving parts and a lot of, uh, you know, personnel and policy and programs and services. And you have to look look at them individually, but then you have to bring them all together as a unit yeah so in terms of bringing that all together you know how did them the book come about in terms of of wanting to bring all those experiences and all that expertise and and specifically in a way that's going to work as a book as a format as a way of kind of being able to sort of use that experience to to get all that across to to the people that are going to read it yeah yeah it's a very interesting question it was it was my first book so i was 
with with my, my publishing team. Each phase was was new to me, and and at times there was um, multiple things that were on parallel tracks. So like I was writing the book, and it's time to to give it a title, and it's like, yeah, really? <laughs> Let me. I thought I had to finish the book first, but in any case, um, yeah, the book. The book is uh, largely a book on educational leadership, although, like I said earlier, uh, the the framework of, of a personal theory of action, which I'll get to in a bit, is someone something any leader can use because it's a leadership framework. Uh, so I ended up uh, writing this book uh, soon after I retired in 2021. So it was about a two-year process from beginning to end, and it was published in in July of, of, of this year, 2023. Um, so, I mean, I largely, after I retired, uh, actually I had written an article for, for the Yale School of Management uh, on, on needing a personal theory of action when you're leading. And that was kind of the jumping off place to writing the book. So I had written the article and then I was in the, I was transitioning from finishing the superintendency and, and retiring. Uh, and then I started thinking about, you know, that, that article can, can probably be a larger, a larger book. So I, I largely wrote the book. If I had to pick one word it is to help. So, but, you know, if I had to, you know, flesh it out some more, I, I wrote the leader's algorithm to, to help aspiring new and current school administrators. And uh, there were two main main reasons uh, why I ended up uh, writing the book. One was uh, the, the vision for the book was to, to share what I had learned from my 30-year journey in public education, uh, 16 years of that as a superintendent of schools. I wanted to share uh, what I had learned from my advocates and my mentors. I wanted to share what I learned from the Broad Academy, which had a very large impact on who I was as a superintendent. And I wanted to share what I learned from my book mentors. A lot of my mentors were actually authors of books, uh, books that I read and case studies that I read and authors that I mostly never met. Uh, and the second reason, uh, which circles back to what I said before, the reason uh, for writing the book was my hope is that aspiring uh, new uh, and current school administrators will read and use my book to help create their leadership framework and strategies so that they can lead and manage their, uh, their schools and their school districts. And I guess that's what uh, one of the, one of the things which is is kind of important is that you kind of hope that especially like say new leaders and new administrators as they're coming in, you only know what you know, and even if they've had great training and and they kind of feel like they're ready to go, what you don't have, like say, is that thirty years experience in in there. And so I think to have some of those key takeaways and some some really sort of insightful moments that. You, give you give you a framework and a format that's going to at least help you find your best way in your version is going to be really 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 important for them yeah yeah i mean listen it's um as leaders we all have uh thoughts in our heads mental models values belief systems you know our, our experiences and then you're given the job and then and you 
and you have to lead. And if, if you, you haven't had a lot of mentors along the way, you're kind of, kind of on your own. And, and that generally, uh, ended up being my experience in public education, especially in the settings that, that, I, that I was in where, where mostly folks were, were managers and the most effective people were actually the most effective managers that the, didn't mean that they were effective leaders, but yeah, you know, they like quote unquote. Like I said in one of my uh, stories in the book, that that the trains ran on time. You know, the most effective managers could 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 make the school districts run uh, efficiently. That doesn't mean they were leading great school systems or had high aspirations or had a clear vision and mission for the for the organization pa- past the status quo, but. Uh, uh, yeah. So, I mean, the leader's algorithm, uh, just to g- give the, the the listeners and yourself a, a sense of uh, what it is, it, it's ultimately, it's, it's the title of the book, but it, it's also, it's also uh, a formula, right? And I talk about it in re- really early on in the book that the leader's algorithm is, is simply a, 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 an equation that puts strategic thinking to work so your your the thoughts that are in your head your 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 mental models your experiences uh your values and your beliefs you you put it to work by writing and then publicly sharing a personal theory of action then you you execute that personal theory of action consistently with public accountability and if you do that then you will transform your life work schools school districts and relationships and that's really powerful i think then especially bearing in mind that's something that you've done (laughs) and so you sort of mentioned there that you've got stories and things that you share through there so what can people expect as they sort of work their way through the book in terms of that format and that kind of storytelling and as well as as like you said some sort of really key takeaways yeah i mean uh Uh, the introduction starts right away with a with a story of me in kindergarten uh, getting ready to fail it, and uh, and and uh, and the kindergarten teacher telling my mom that I needed to learn my colors, otherwise I was going to stay back in kindergarten, and uh, and she starts to cry and I start to cry, and that's how the book starts. And and uh, the larger point is that we thought we were crying because I was failing, but. Uh, we were really crying because there was a lack of leadership uh, right, at the classroom level and at the school level where a, you know, you're, you're going to fail a kid uh, because he didn't know his colors and he's five years old. And what you didn't know at the time was that he actually did know his colors. He actually, but he knew them in Spanish. He just didn't know them in English. Right. And, and, and the teacher didn't take the time to, to even realize that my mom didn't even know English at the time. So, uh, that's how the story begins, and, and, and then that introductory chapter eventually uh, tells you that uh, I came out okay on the other side because I ended <laughs> up going to Yale and Columbia and then, you know, having a, a fairly uh, good, good, good career um, from a teacher to, to, to a superintendent. So um, the book then uh, begins by defining the leader's algorithm, which, which I just did before. Uh, which is the equation of a personal theory of action plus execution, right? Because you can't just keep it a theory. You actually have to put it into practice. And then holding yourself publicly accountable for your actions and your results, then then 
it equals transformation. So that, that's the leader's algorithm. But at the heart of the leader's algorithm is creating a personal theory of action. And uh, in that first chapter, I share uh, my personal theory of action, the, the two, the final two that I had in Elizabeth and in Passaic. And then that chapter goes on to teach you how to write your, your own personal theory of action. So you know, for your listeners, just real quickly, a theory of action is, is, is basically a hypothesis that says um, if I take these actions and if my team takes these actions, then it will lead to certain results. Um, said a different way, uh, if we do A, B, and C, uh, then we will get X, Y, and Z results. And then there are different types of personal, um, there's different types of theories of action, but this book largely deals with a personal theory of action. So personal theory of action is, again, still a, a hypothesis, but in this case, it's what you can personally do and what you can do through your team to achieve your goals. And it's written in a logical chain of if-then statements that lead to your ultimate goal. And usually your ultimate goal is either the mission statement or paraphrasing of the mission statements. And uh, this this formula, this, this framework, this personal theory of action of if I do these things, um, then this result will come out is really the, the, the leadership framework that that I use to lead and manage the Elizabeth Public Schools and the Passaic Public Schools. Um, so um, the way that a personal theory of action is structured is uh, the first if is what I can do. Then the second is if is how I select leaders and what I expect them to focus in on. The third if is, is what the organization, what are those major strategic actions the organization is going to take and then the fourth final if is uh our guiding principles that i that i use to focus the organization and then if the personal theory of action ultimately ends with the then statement what is it you ultimately are trying trying to accomplish uh the rest of the book uh walks you through uh seven major concepts of leading so that's uh leading through vision leading through expectations, leading through teamwork, leading with skills, leading in your community, leading with resilience, and leading with love. And in those chapters, I uh, provide the reader, I I teach the reader different um, leadership skills and, and ideas and values. And then I amplify those points by sharing uh, personal history stories of, of myself, uh, like we said, I, I share a bunch of baseball stories, but I, a lot of I also use a lot of professional stories from the public education setting uh, to amplify those points to uh, really give the reader a sense of okay, you said this, but how does that actually work out in real life? Uh, and it's very interesting as in the very beginning uh, when I was working with my publisher, where there is like I said, it was new to me. <laughs> all the stages when they, we were at the, what type of tone do you want to take, take with this book? And I was like, oh, well, explain that to me. And uh, we ultimately got around to understanding and I said, oh, okay, I, I understand that. So I like to write. And so the book is, if you read it, it's 
it's not very education jargony, although the first chapter may be what is uh, what is the leader's algorithm it is a little more academic there. But after that, it gets, it's a fairly uh, easy uh, read because we tell stories and it gets you to turn the page. So uh, we they asked me, what authors would you like to kind of capture uh, the essence in your book? And I said, James Patterson was one of them, the way he writes nice, good stories, simply turning the page. And then John, John Maxwell, uh, the, the great leadership expert, where he actually tells you a leadership principle and then he tells you some great stories to amplify it. So that's essentially how the book flows. Um, uh, and and that's the, those are the big concepts that are in the book. Yeah, I love it. Um, and I'm just interested um, from that leadership standpoint. So that kind of A, B and C taking you to sort of X, Y and Z, how does that then fit when something like Q happens in the middle, like a pandemic <laughs> or a change of a change of policy or a change of government and that kind of thing? Is it then just the, you know using the mission and the values and all of those things, just having to sort of slightly slightly refocus that in order to kind of gear it back on track, as it were, within but with those sort of new expectations or restrictions or whichever yeah. it ends up being. Yeah. Well, the interesting thing about the book is that uh, I write about failures and successes, right? So it's it, uh, depending on what point needed to be made, I, you know, I failed plenty of times and, and, and I had successes. Uh, so like, like I said earlier on in, in the show is public education is smack in the middle of, of politics and certainly in urban settings. Uh, politics are, are, are a blood sport. And, uh, and that was certainly the case in, in the Elizabeth Public Schools. So I, I, I do share a bunch of stories about uh, the battles that are going on while at the same time trying to keep the school district focused. Uh, the larger point is, listen, if you're going to be a leader and you have some belief system and you just keep it in your head, um, you're going to be... Uh, you know what? Let's choose different metaphors. You're going to be in the boxing ring and get hit in the mouth, and you're going to, you're going to be, uh, you know, dazed, or you're going to be in a boat in choppy waters. And, you know, you're going to, every it, it, like I used to tell my candidates before I recommended them to the board's administrators um, their, their final interview. I would tell them, you know, these are the six things I need you to focus in on, which is the the second if statement and um but there's going to be a lot of noise and your job is to uh deal with the noise but always get back into the classroom always get back into the classroom always look get back to improving the instructional core because if you let the the noise control you you're never going to do what you're what you're primarily there to do which is provide the students an excellent education so um the larger point is like for any leader um any leader any leader uh the my book will help them if they write their personal theory of action and share it to keep them focused because inevitably you are going to get COVID-19 is going to show up. Inevitably the board may switch. You, you had, you know, you had a nine Oh board voting favorably and all of a sudden two elections later, you find yourself five, four or, or six, three or, 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 I had one time I had nine one, but that one person was just the thorn on the side all the time at the meeting, causing uh, tensions uh, just because that's what 
that person wanted to do. So uh, I think, and and I would recommend to, to, to the listeners and anyone who is leading any type of organization, it can be a small group or it can be a large or international company uh, with hundreds of thousand employees is to actually take the ideas that you have in your head about leading and write a personal theory of action, put it down on paper. Mine is on an eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper on one side. Uh, Very clear, simple, uh, strategic statements. And that guides you because inevitably, like you said, you're going to be hit all the time with uh, new ideas, right? You got this new board member that will, hey, I got some new ideas, great ideas, or or you read a new book and, and, and say, oh, there's some great ideas. But if you have a foundational anchor, a framework about how you're going to lead, it will keep you consistent as as the good and the bad happens to you. And uh, and also the beauty of the, uh, the, the, the personal theory of action is that it's not designed to stay static, right? As you learn more and you have better ideas and you have new experiences and new advocates and mentors that shape your thinking, you, you, you are to, you can modify it, right? you can erase it and, and, and revise it to, to the current context. And that, that's what happened to me moving from Elizabeth to Passaic. I had to look at my theory of action and see was was it completely applicable to my new setting and and it wasn't so i, I did have to modify the 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 personal theory of action that I used in Elizabeth as I moved to Passaic uh, to to match the context that I was dealing with at the time in in Passaic and then those two documents are in uh, in the appendix appendix a and b and you can and you when you read it you can see that there's a lot of con- similar consistency, but then there's a big change in the guiding principles because Passaic was in a different place at the time that it entered than where Elizabeth was while I was doing the work there. Yeah, I think that's fascinating to hear. And I think it gives it'll give people so much kind of heart in the fact that I don't have to get it right, which is a real education thing. I must know the answers. I must get it right. And like you say, having all those things in place gives you that uh, that flexibility and I guess support as well, that no matter what comes at you and knowing that there's always going to be something, there's a, that there's a way through. And, uh, and I'm always interested especially people who've sort of gone through education as a career as well. Is there an education experience or a teacher that you remember? And and also, how did that sort of play out in terms of the education person that you then sort of turned into? Um, well, there, there, there were three. Uh, there were three that had uh, an impact on me. Uh, well, let me just, but I'll just share one for now. Uh, her name was, uh, Mrs. Hoff. Uh, yeah, I, it was first and second grade. So I don't remember. <laughs> I don't even know if I was ever told her first name. Uh, it was Mrs. Hoff and I ended up having her for two years, first grade. And then we stayed in the second grade. And, uh, like I said earlier, I'm coming out of kindergarten, just getting ready to fail kindergarten. And all of a sudden I get a new teacher and academically things turn around for me. And, uh, and, and, and that teacher's approach, uh, I was nurturing and caring and wanted me to, to, to see me succeed. And I, I, I saw myself going from where I was in kindergarten to, um, blossoming and starting to develop some 
uh, good academic habits and becoming a better student. Uh, and eventually that, 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 that was kind of the jumping off point to, to, to really become a, a fairly good academic student. I don't know what would have happened to me uh, if I would have had three consecutive uh, teachers that didn't believe in me, but that particular teacher did. And it wasn't just me, it was all, all the students. It just happened to be my story that I was coming from one experience of, you're not gonna make it to all of a sudden two years in a row with the same teacher that you can. Yeah, I mean, it makes a massive difference, doesn't it? Because that it's actually their story that they're giving you. And like you say, especially when it's that young age, you take it on board because it must be true because they're the adult, they're the teacher, they're the person in, in charge without any of those things. So to hear the positive side of that as well, I think is also gives people a lot of heart that, and also knowledge that, you know, every conversation that you have with a child is really, really important. And how you talk, how you go about that, the the phrasing that you do, as well as the understanding of the child and that idea of being seen just makes such a big difference and, and makes a massive educational change, despite, you know, like you say, the actual framework of education, um, maybe, maybe being the same. Yeah, she was, she, she was very interesting in the sense that eventually I become the superintendent of this school district years later. Uh, so, uh, 20, maybe 30, yeah, 30 years later, probably. And, uh, she was, she had left the district, but I started asking around, say, where, where what happened to Miss Hoff? What happened? Where'd she go? And someone knew where she was and had her telephone number. And I actually ended up calling her, wow. uh, when I was superintendent and I told, Hey, I'm Pablo. I don't know if you remember me. I, I had you, you in first and second grade. You had an incredible impact on my life. I'm, I'm superintendent now. I, I ended up going to Yale and Columbia and, and, uh, uh, I, you know, it was, it was a moment for me to, to tell her how great a person she was in my life. Um, I don't know that it was, I, I don't, I don't know what happened on the other side of the phone call because uh, she had a lot of students. Um, I think she appreciated the call, but in the end, I wanted to make sure she understood that she, she really did have an impact on the child. Yeah. And, and I think hearing that can only ever be a, a great thing. And I think so often you're dealing with crises or you're dealing with the issues that are kind of taking your focus. And so to sort of hear that positive in that feedback, and especially like say, from a few years after to know that even if you don't know it at the time, everything you're doing can be a can be a really positive thing and, and affecting someone's life in a way that isn't just a grade score or <laughs> whatever people consider to be the important thing of the of the day. Um, what was the best piece of advice you've ever been given? Or indeed, is there a piece of advice you'd give your, your sort of younger Pablo looking, looking back? Uh, slow down. Yeah, slow down. Uh, stay in the classroom as a teacher longer and become an administrator later. Uh, I, I ended up being fast-tracked. Uh, I, I became, I was an administrator by the time I was 26. I was superintendent by the time I was 35. I ended up retiring when I was 52. Um, uh, I would have, I would, and I do tell people now, it was like, you know, take, take your time, take your time. So, uh, there, there's there's going to be plenty of opportunities. And quite frankly, these days there are, there are plenty of opportunities yeah. because in the United States, I don't know if it's playing out in the UK, there's, there's, there's a massive teacher shortage, which is also going to play out eventually to administrative sort of shortages. Um, but 
Yeah, I would, I would do it a, a little bit differently. Uh, I was happy, ambitious, and wanted to make an impact on my hometown school district. So I was happy to take on those challenges because the leaders thought I could do it at the time. But in, in retrospect, uh, now that I look back, or even when I was superintendent when, and I was going through the, the dark the dark parts of that I write about in the book uh, of the superintendency and, and the happy parts uh, of that, uh, I would have... Uh, I would have probably wanted to delay my entry into administration a bit. Yeah. And I, I guess experience is key in so many ways. And like I say, it sounds exciting and important fast tracking, doesn't it? Like you say, but <laughs> it's amazing. It's amazing what hindsight does in, and, and that sort of experience of, uh, of being able to do that sort of looking back. Um, is there a resource you'd like to share? And this can be anything from a podcast, book, video, film, song, but something which has had an impact that you think would be um, interesting for people to hear. Yeah, um, I think uh, if you're into leadership or you want to learn leadership, you want to become you're in a role and you want to become a better leader. I think you should read everything you can written by John Maxwell. Uh, I haven't read everything, but. Uh, I think I've read about 40 of his things and, and, uh, and he gets, he gets leadership and he gets you to understand it. And then you, after you read it, you have to go try it out and, and experiment and see what works for you. Another one of his resources that I listen to every day is, uh, he sends you an email. You have to sign up for it. It's, uh, called minute with Maxwell. And it's usually, <laughs> it's funny. It's not even a minute. It's usually like two or three minutes long, but, uh, he takes a word that someone gives to him, uh, or, or he goes over uh, a concept in his book and he amplify it he amplifies it and tells and teaches a leadership lesson through that. So either reading some of his books or, or getting a minute with Maxwell email to you every day, you know, real short video really will uh, help you learn more and think about leadership in a different way that, that would make you more successful for those that, that are interested. uh, I think the most impactful uh, education, formal educational experience that I had that led me to become a better uh, and hopefully, I think, effective, yeah, uh, superintendent was uh, the Broad Academy. And at the time, it was uh, run by the Broad Foundation. At this point, uh, the Broad Foundation gave money to the Yale School of Management. Uh, so they're running the program. So they're, they're always looking for uh, they have they run two programs. One is uh, the fellows program, which is what used to be called the Broad Academy, which is what I did, which is largely they teach you things and you get a certificate at the end. And then they also uh, are running a master's program, which used to be called the residency. Uh, but now it's it's a master's in public education. Uh, I think those two uh, uh, programs are really uh practical right they they get it they they get what you're supposed to be doing in public education and then they give you the tools um they don't they aren't just following some state law around you need to take these level of courses and have these credits to get this certificate they really think about what uh, a practitioner will need as tools and and that that program was really really important in my development yeah, no, I can see that. And we'll make sure we've got links to all of these things on the show notes as well. So if you haven't managed to catch it while you're listening, we can we can make sure you can click click straight through. Um, 
And the acronym FIRE is incredibly important to us here, obviously, Educational FIRE. And by that, we mean feedback, inspiration, resilience, and empowerment. What's the thing that kind of strikes you when you hear that? Well, I have I have a little bit for each one, so hopefully I get I have we have enough time for me to share. So for for me, uh, the first one, uh, feedback, uh, uh, has has been, and I, I write about a couple of different uh, uh, structures that I put in place in my two school districts, but I do write about, write about feedback as, an, as a critical piece to improving urban education. Uh, in most cases, it's not taken uh, with the, the, the seriousness that it needs to be. And, uh, you know, those that are familiar with John Hattie's work uh, understand that uh, feedback is, is crucial, right? And a teacher to student, administrator to to teacher, uh, administrator to administrator, giving them high quality feedback on teaching and learning. If it if it's around the instructional core, the teacher, the student, the content, and the academic task. Uh, if it's you know administrator to administrator around leadership or around observing instruction and giving feedback on helping a teacher improve uh, her teaching skills. Uh, that 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 is critical, and uh, I have learned and have experienced that when feedback is not leveraged properly uh, a school district you know flounders and fails uh, you really have to leverage that and, and constructively right it's not the, and, and sometimes people think it's negative but it's it's not it's not about being negative critically negative right being critical of someone it's about thinking about how they can improve their practice to ultimately help kids improve their academic performance uh inspiration uh i mean inspirations at is one of those variables that it's at the heart of leadership you know being an effective leader you have to inspire and and influence uh people to do things uh effectively uh, so what comes to mind for me is my high school baseball coach, Ray Korn. Uh, he was a great inspiration to me. Um, he, he, he taught me a lot of things, uh, especially pitching. But uh, outside of that, things that I apply to my life, my children, and my leadership, my students, uh, was about being a champion and winning championships. And they're, and they're two different things. Right. Being a champion was being it was about how you conducted yourself on and off the field and that you needed to excel athletically, but you also needed to excel academically. Right. And that that was being a champion, being a champion person. And then obviously it was crucial for us to win championships uh, and to do that. Uh, the, the championship wasn't won the day of the game. It was done in all the practices and all the preparation that people didn't see. that That's when you won the championships was when you were doing the hard work of practice. Uh, so those those two concepts played played out heavily in my leadership uh, at, at the different stages, but especially as the superintendent. Uh, resilience, whew. <laughs> I, I have a whole chapter on that one. The, the chapter, uh, chapter seven, leading on resilience, I lead with the, the blood sport story of the politics in, uh, in Elizabeth and the stresses that it was causing me 
And, uh, and, and I talk about my struggle with anxiety and depression and, and, and needing to be hospitalized. But ultimately, the, that chapter gets into providing uh, the reader resources on how to uh, be resilient and how to, yeah, you fell down, but now you, you need to get up. And, and I, I end up uh, teaching a lot of it. But uh, that, that, that chapter, when I wrote it, no, the last two chapters, Leading with Love and chap, that was chapter eight and chapter seven, Leading with Resilience, uh, I, I cried a lot when I wrote those chapters. So they, they were really raw and impactful. Hopefully the reader uh, will get uh, what they need out of it. Um, and, and the main reason I wrote the chapter on resilience and talked about anxiety and depression was to uh, help um, help the world, help the readers, help anyone that's saying that mental illness is okay. And, and, and you know, it, it, like what they say, you know, if you have a physical ailment, you get a bad organ, broken arm, oh, Oh, I'm. I feel for you. You know, feel better. But if if you tell someone you have a mental illness, that you know that you, that you still get shamed or, or it's taboo. So, I, it, it was my effort not only to help the reader uh, bounce back and be more resilient, but also to 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 help do my little part in the world of taking uh, breaking down the taboo and the shame that people often feel with mental illness and, and for me to talk about it and be raw about it and be vulnerable about it. Hopefully that helps others um, be resilient and, and deal with it. And also, you know, seek the help when before, before it becomes too late. And the last uh, part of fire is empowerment. And for me, what comes to mind is um, the, the work of the late Richard Elmore uh, from Harvard. Um, uh, he he wrote something that had a big impact on me. And, uh, it, it wasn't something that I discovered. It was my assistant Soup, who was she was not my assistant Soup at the time. She was actually getting her graduate degree there, and she came back one day, and we had a conversation. We ended up reading some of his articles, and it's about reciprocal accountability. That when I think of empowerment, I think about reciprocal accountability, which says. If you're going to demand of your teachers or your administrators certain standards, and for me, it was high expectations and excellence, then you have the responsibility as the leader, right? You have the reciprocal responsibility to provide the teacher and the administrator that you're holding the high standards to provide them with the skills uh, that they need to, to execute at that level and to provide the professional development, the coaching, the feedback in order to, for them to, to hit, hit the markers that you want. Uh, otherwise, it, you're not empowering them. You, you, I mean, you're just giving them you know, the bag and then walking away. You have to be with the, there with them. And, and the reciprocal accountability, I think, for me, captures uh, what, account, what empowerment should be. Yeah, I love that because I'm not sure I've quite heard it put so succinctly, but with so much clarity as well. You know, you sort of 
you kind of often think, oh yes, I'm I'm just going to give you some advice or send you in a direction and empower you to do it. But like I say, without all those other tools, scaffolding, support, whatever that happens to be, then you're only doing half the job. So I really, really loved that that kind of way of doing it. And my other big takeaway from what you were saying is I think that idea of resilience and love especially coming towards the end of everything is so important because they go hand in hand because you can't do anything without sort of giving yourself the support and the love that you need, whether it's the good times or the bad times or understanding how it all fits together. Um, so I think it's such an important thing. Like I say, firstly, in terms of the dialogue and opening up and I'm, you know, to be, to be raw and share those things, I think is something which people really need to understand and to hear because then they can identify it in real time. Um, but then also knowing that, you know, that the heart of it is, is, is not only just opening up about it, but allowing it to be okay and to support yourself and then, you know, loving the, like I said, the failures and the, and the, the, and also the success and whatever that happens to be for you as well is not, as opposed to what everyone else thinks it's a failure or or however that happens to be. So I really love the way that that manages um, to sort of sort of encapsulate really, I think everything that, we, that we've spoken about and, and a really sort of key, important, important message. So yeah, thanks so much for that. Tell people where they can find out much more, um, get the book, obviously find out more about the the leadership coaching and the mentoring and everything that you're doing and uh, yeah, and enter into more into that world of wisdom that you've been sharing. Yeah, I mean, the leader's algorithm is at, uh, at uh, Amazon. It's uh, any bookstore, I guess, can get it for you. You know, Barnes Noble online. Uh, I really encourage uh, those that want to uh, learn more about leadership and, and create a strategic framework uh, to get the book. Uh, if you want to learn about uh, me and my uh, consulting company, Munoz and Company, uh, I have a website. Uh, at www.themunozcompany.com, uh, there you can learn about the services that I provide. A little bit, of, a little bit more about me, uh, what other people say about me. There's also some resources, uh, books, resources, article resources, some downloadable, free downloadables, and also a page there on the book itself. So you can uh, you can sign up if if you just want to get a free chapter, get a taste of it. You can do that. Um, I'm also on LinkedIn, so uh, you can find me at Pablo Munoz on LinkedIn. Um, and if you just want to contact me directly, uh, you can email me. And my address is pablo at themunozcompany.com. I'd be happy to take your email and exchange. And, and, we just, and my telephone number is also on my website. You can always call me. I'd love to take anybody's call and just have a chat. And if I can be of help. I'd love to do that. And if I can't, and if you just want to talk, I'd love to talk to you as well. Fantastic. Well, Pablo, thank you so much for your time and sharing all that wisdom. And um, it's going to have helped so many people. And I love the fact that in this podcast, we're able to be able to not just talk about education, but also share what people have done and what they've created to therefore put that into practice and then take that into their lives and like say create their own version of what they like their education world to to be and to support children in whichever way they can so yeah thank you so much indeed for sharing all of that thank you so much thank you for having me thank you for listening and being part of this wonderful community with over 300 episodes i've collated 20 resources from guests that have been on the show to help you in your educational journey and those of you involved with young people just go to educationonfire.com and you can sign up on the homepage. 
Thanks for listening to the Education on Fire podcast. For more information of each episode and to get in touch, go to educationonfire.com. Education is not the filling of a pail, but the lighting of a fire.